Chapter Two of the Unclassed. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeff Blanchard. The Unclassed by George Robert Gissing. Chapter Two: Mother and Child. Ida Starr, dismissed by the schoolmistress, ran quickly homewards. She was unusually late, and her mother would be anxious. Still, when she came within sight of the door, she stopped and stood panting. How should she tell of her disgrace? It was not fear that made her shrink from repeating Miss Rutherford's message, nor yet shame, though she would gladly have hidden herself away somewhere in the dark from every eye. Her overwhelming concern was the pain she knew she was going to cause one who had always cherished her with faultless tenderness tenderness which it had become her nature to repay with a child's unreflecting devotion her home was in milton street on the front door was a brass plate which bore the inscription mrs ledward dressmaker in the window of the ground floor was a large card announcing that apartments were vacant the only light was one which appeared in the top story and there ida knew that her mother was waiting for her with tea ready on the table as usual. Mrs. Starr was seldom at home during the child's dinner hour, and Ida had not seen her at all today, for it was only occasionally that she shared her mother's bedroom. It was the rule for her to sleep with Mrs. Ledward, the landlady, who was a widow and without children. The arrangement had held ever since Ida could remember. When she had become old enough to ask for an explanation of this, among other singularities, in their mode of life, she was told that her mother slept badly, and must have the bed to herself. But the night had come on, and every moment of delay doubtless increased the anxiety she was causing. Ida went up to the door, stood on tiptoe to reach the door-knocker, and gave her usual two distinct raps. Mrs. Ledward opened the door to her in person, a large woman, with pressed lips, and eyes that squinted very badly attired however neatly and looking as good-natured as a woman who was at once landlady and dressmaker could be expected to look how's it to you so late she asked without looking at the child her eyes as far as one could guess fixed upon the houses opposite her hands in the little pocket of each side of her apron your mother's poorly oh then i shall sleep with her to-night exclaimed ida forgetting her trouble for the moment in this happy foresight dare say returned mrs ledward laconically ida left her still standing in the doorway and ran stairs the chamber she went into after knocking and receiving permission to enter according to the rule which had been impressed upon her was a tolerable furnished bedroom which with its bright fire tasteful little lamp white coverlets and general air of fresh orderliness made a comfortable appearance the air was scented too with some pleasant odour of a not too pungent kind but the table lacked one customary feature. No tea was laid, as it was wont to be at this hour. The child gazed round in surprise. Her mother was in bed, lying back on raised pillows, and with a restless, half-pettish look on her face. "'Where have you been?' she asked querulously, her voice husky and feeble, as if from a severe cold. "'Why are you so late?' Ida did not answer at once, but went straight to the bed and offered the accustomed kiss. Her mother waved her off. No, no, don't kiss me. Can't you see what a sore throat I've got? 
You might catch it, and I haven't got you any tea. She went on, her face growing to a calmer expression as she gazed at the child. Ain't I a naughty mother? But it serves you half right for being late. Come and kiss me. I don't think it's catching. No, perhaps you'd better not. But Ida started forward at the granted leave and kissed her warmly. There now, went on the horsey voice complainingly. I shouldn't wonder if you catch it, and we shall both be laid up at once. Oh, Ida, I do feel that poorly, I do. It's a draught under the door, what else can it be? I do, I do feel that poorly. She began to cry miserably. Ida forgot all about the tale she had to tell. Her own eyes overflowed in sympathy. She put her arm under her mother's neck and pressed cheek to cheek tenderly. Oh, how hot you are, mother. Shall I get you a cup of tea, dear? Wouldn't it make your throat better? Perhaps it would, I don't know. Don't go away, not just yet. You'll have to be a mother to me tonight, Ida. I almost feel I could go to sleep if you held me like that. She closed her eyes, but only for a moment, then started up anxiously. What am I thinking about? Of course you want your tea. No, no, indeed I don't, mother. Nonsense, of course you do. See, the kettle is on the bob, and I think it's full. Go away, you make me hotter. Let me see you get your tea, and then perhaps it'll make me feel I could drink a cup. There, you've put your hair all out of order. Let me smooth it. Don't trouble to lay the cloth. Just use the tray. It's in the cupboard. Ida obeyed and set about the preparations. Compare her face with that which rested sideways upon the pillows, and the resemblance was as strong as could be expected between two people of such different ages. The same rich brown hair, the same strongly penciled eyebrows, the deep-set and very dark eyes, the fine lips, the somewhat prominent jawbones, alike in both. The mother was twenty-eight, the daughter ten, yet the face on the pillow was more childish at present. In the mother's eyes was a helpless look, a gaze of unintelligent misery, such as one could not conceive on Ida's countenance. Her lips, too, were weakly parted, and seemed trembling to a sob, while sorrow only made the child close hers the firmer. In the one case a pallor not merely of present illness, but that wasting whiteness which is only seen on faces accustomed to borrow artificial hues. In the other, a healthy, pearl tint, the gleamings and gradations of a perfect complexion, the one a child long lost on weary, woeful ways, knowing yet untaught by the misery of desolation, the other a child still standing upon the misty threshold of unknown lands, looking around for guidance, yet already half feeling that the sole guide and comforter was within. It was strange that talk which followed between mother and daughter. Lottie Starr, that was the name of the elder child, and it became her much better than any more matronly appellation, would not remain silent, in spite of the efforts it cost her to speak, and her conversation ran on the most trivial topics. Except at occasional moments, she spoke to Ida as to one of her own age, with curious neglect of the relationship between them. At times she gave herself up to the luxury of feeling like an infant dependent on another's care, and cried just for the pleasure of being petted and consoled. Ida had made up her mind to leave her disclosure till the next morning. Impossible to grieve her mother with such shocking news 
when she was so poorly. Yet the little girl with difficulty kept a cheerful countenance. As often as a moment's silence left her to her own reflections, she was reminded of the heaviness of heart which made speaking an effort to bear up under the secret thought of her crime and its consequences required in Ida Starr a courage different alike in quality and degree from that of which children are ordinarily capable. One compensation alone helped her. It was still early in the evening, and she knew there were before her long hours to be spent by her mother's side. "'Do you like me to be with you, mother?' she asked. When a timid question had at length elicited assurance of this joy, "'Does it make you feel better?' "'Yes, yes. But it's my throat, and you can't make that better. I only wish you could. But you are a comfort to me, for all that. I don't know what I should do without you. Oh, I shan't be able to speak a word soon. I shan't.' "'Don't, don't talk, dear. I'll talk instead, and you listen. Don't you think, mother dear, I could, could always sleep with you? I wouldn't disturb you, indeed.' Indeed I wouldn't. You don't know how quiet I lie. If I'm wakeful ever, I seem to have such a lot to think about, and I lie so still and quiet. You can't think. I never wake Mrs. Ledward, indeed. Do let me, mother. Just try me. Lottie broke out in passionate weeping, wrung her hands, and hid her face in the pillow. Ida was terrified, and exerted every effort to console this strange grief. The outburst only endured a minute or two. However, then a mood of vexed impatience grew out of the anguish and despair, and Lottie pushed away the child fretfully. I've only told you, you can't, you mustn't bother me. There, there, you don't mean any harm, but you put me out, bothering me, Ida. Tell me, what do you think about when you lay awake? Don't you think you'd give anything to get off to sleep again? I know I do. I can't bear to think it makes my head ache so. Oh, I like it. Sometimes I think over what I've been reading in the animal book and the geography book, and, and then I begin my wishing thoughts. And oh, I've such lots of wishing thoughts you couldn't believe. And what are the wishing thoughts about, inquired the mother, in a matter-of-fact way. I often wish I was grown up. I feel tired of being a child. I want to be a woman. Then I should know so much more, and I should be able to understand all the things you tell me I can't now. I don't care for playing at games and going to school. You'll be a woman soon enough, Ida, said Lottie, with a quiet sadness unusual in her. But go on, what else? And then I often wish I was a boy. It must be so much nicer to be a boy. They're stronger than girls, and they know more. Don't you wish I was a boy, mother? Yes, I do. I often do, exclaimed Lottie. Boys aren't such a trouble and they can go out and shift for themselves. Oh, but I won't be a trouble to you, exclaimed Ida, when I'm old enough to leave school. She interrupted herself for the moment she had actually forgotten the misfortune which had come upon her, but her mother did not observe the falling of her countenance, nor yet the incomplete sentence. Ida, have I been a bad mother to you? Lottie sobbed out presently. If I was to die, would you be sorry? Mother! I've done my best indeed, I've done my best for yon. How many mothers like me would have brought you up as I've done? How many? I'd like to know. And some day you'll hate me. Oh yes, you will. Some day you'll wish to forget all about me. And you'll never come to see where I'm buried. And you'll get rid of everything that could remind you of me. How I wish I'd never been born. 
Ida had often to comfort her mother in the latter's fits of low spirits, but had never heard such sad words as these before. The poor child could say nothing in reply. The terrible thought that she herself was bringing new woes to be endured almost broke her heart. She clung about her mother's neck and wept passionately. Lottie shortly after took a draught from a bottle, which the child reached out of a drawer for her, and lay pretty still till drowsiness came on. Ida undressed and crept to her side. They had a troubled night, and, when the daylight came again, Lottie was no better. Ida rose in anguish of spirit, torturing herself to find a way of telling what must be told. Yet she had another respite. Her mother said that, as it was Saturday, she might as well stay away from school and be a little nurse, and the dull day wore through, the confession being still postponed. But by the last post at night came Miss Rutherford's letter. Ida was still sitting up, and Lottie had fallen into a doze, when the landlady brought the letter upstairs. The child took it in, answered an inquiry about her mother in a whisper, and returned to the bedside. She knew the handwriting on the envelope. The dreaded moment had come. She must have stood more than a quarter of an hour motionless, gazing on her mother's face, conscious of nothing but an agonized expectation of seeing the sleeper's eyes open. They did open at length, and quickly saw the letter. It's from Miss Rutherford, mother said Ida, her own voice sounding very strange to herself. "'Oh, is it?' said Lottie, in the hoarse whisper, which was all she could command. "'I suppose she wants to know why you didn't go. Read it to me.' Ida read, and in reading suffered as she never did again throughout her life. "'Dear Mrs. Starr, I am very sorry to have to say that Ida must not return to school. I had better leave the explanation to herself. She is truthful, and will tell you what has compelled me to take this step? I grieve to lose her, but have really no choice. I am yours truly, H. Rutherford. No tears rose. Her voice was as firm as though she had been reading in class. But she was pale and cold as death. Lottie rose in bed and stared wildly. What have you done, child? Whatever have you done? Is, is it anything about me? I hit Harriet Smales with a slate and covered her all over with blood, and I thought I'd killed her. She could not meet her mother's eyes, stood with head hung down, and her hands clasped behind her. What made you do it? asked Lottie in amazement. I couldn't help it, mother. She, she said you were a bad woman. Ida had raised her eyes with a look of love and proud confidence. Lottie shrank before her, clutching convulsively at the bedclothes, then half raised herself and dashed her head with fearful violence against the wall by which the bed stood. She fell back, half stunned, and lay on pillows, whilst the child, with outstretched hands, gazed horror-struck. But in a moment Ida had her arms around the distraught woman, pressing the dazed head against her breast. Lottie began to utter incoherent self-reproaches, unintelligible to her little comforter. Her voice had become the merest whisper. She seemed to have quite exhausted herself. Just now there came a knock at the door, and Ida was relieved to see Mrs. Ledward, whose help she begged. In a few minutes Lottie had come to herself again, and whispered that she wished to speak to the landlady alone. The latter persuaded Ida to go downstairs for a while, and the child, whose tears had begun to flow, left the room sobbing in anguish. "'Ain't you better then?' asked the woman. 
with an apparent effort to speak in sympathetic tone, which did not come easily to her. "'I'm very bad,' whispered the other, drawing her breath as if in pain. "'Ah, you've got a bad cold, that's what it is. I'll make you some gruel presently, and put some rum in it. You don't take care of yourself. I told you how you'd be when you came in with those ring things on, on Thursday night. They found out about me at school, gasped Lottie, with a despairing look, and Ida's got sent away. She has? Well, never mind. You can find another, I suppose. I can't see myself what she wants with so much schoolin'. But I suppose you know best about your own affairs. Oh, I feel that bad. If I get over this, I'll give it up. God help me, I will. I'll get my living honest, if there's any way. I never felt so bad as I do now. Pooh! exclaimed the woman. Wait a bit till you get rid of your sore throat, and you'll think different. Poorly people gets all sorts of fancies. Keep a bit quiet now, and don't put yourself out so. What are we to do? I've only got a few shillings. Well, you'll have money again some time, I suppose. You don't suppose I'll turn you out in the streets? Write to Fred on Monday, and he'll send you something. They talked till Lottie exhausted herself again. Then Ida was allowed to re-enter the room. Mrs. Ledwood kept coming and going till her own bedtime, giving what help and comfort she could in her hard, half-indifferent way. Another night passed, and in the morning Lottie seemed a little better. Her throat was not so painful, but she breathed with difficulty and had a cough. Ida sat holding her mother's hand. It was a sunny morning, and the bells of neighbouring churches began to ring out clearly on the frosty air. Ida, said the sick woman, raising herself suddenly, get me some note paper and an envelope out of the box, and go and borrow pen and ink. There's a good child. The materials were procured, and with a great effort, Lottie managed to arrange herself so as to be able to write. She covered four pages with a sad scrawl, closed the envelope, and was about to direct it, but paused. The bells have stopped, she said, listening. It's half-past eleven. Put on your things, Ida. The child obeyed, wondering. Give me my purse out of the drawer. See, there's a shilling. Now say this after me. Mr. Abram, Woodstock, number, St. John Street, Road. Ida repeated the address. Now listen, Ida. You put this letter in your pocket. You go down into the Marybone Road. You ask for a bus to the Angel. When you get to the Angel, you ask your way to number St. John Street Road. It isn't far off. Knock at the door and ask if Mr. Abram Woodstock is in. If he is, say you want to see him, and then give him this letter into his own hands, and nobody else's. If he isn't in, ask when he will be, and if it won't be long, wait. Ida promised, and then, after a long gaze, her mother dropped back again on the pillow, and turned her face away. A cough shook her for a few moments. Ida waited. "'Well, ain't you gone?' asked Lottie faintly. "'Kiss me, mother.' They held each other in a passionate embrace, and then the child went away. She reached Islington without difficulty, and among the bustling and loitering crowds which obstructs the corner at the Angel found someone to direct her to the street she sought. She had to walk some distance down St. John Street Road, in the direction of the city, before discovering the house she desired to find. When she reached it, it proved to be a very dingy tenement, the ground floor apparently used as offices. A much-worn plate on the door exhibited the name of the gentleman to whom 
her visit was with his professional description added mr woodstock was an accountant she rang the bell and a girl appeared yes mr woodstock was at home ida was told to enter the passage and wait a door at her right hand as she entered was slightly ajar and voices could be heard from the other side of it one of these voices very shortly raised itself in a harsh and angry tone and ida could catch what was said well mr what's your name i suppose i know my own business rather better than you can teach me it's pretty clear you've been doing your best for some time to set the people against me and i'm damned if i'll have it you go to the place of religious pretense and what your real objection may be i don't know but i do know one thing and that is i won't have you hanging about any longer i'll meet you there myself and if it's a third floor window you get pitched out of it well it won't be my fault now i don't want any more talk with you this is most folks praying time i wonder you're not at it it's my time for writing letters and i'd rather have your room than your company i am a plain-spoken man you see a man of business and i don't mince matters to come and dictate to me about the state of my houses and of my tenants ain't a business-like proceeding and you'll excuse me if i don't take it kindly there's the door and good morning to you the door opened and a young man looking pale and dismayed came out quickly and at once left the house behind him came the last speaker at the sight of the waiting child he stood still and the expression of his face changed from sour annoyance to annoyed surprise hmm well he exclaimed looking closely at ida his eyebrows contracting i have a letter from mr abram woodstock sir well give it here who's it from mrs starr sir who's mrs starr come in here will you his short and somewhat angry tone was evidently in some degree the result of the interview that had just closed but also pretty clearly an indication of his general manner to strangers he let the child pass him and followed her into the room with the letter in his hand he did not seem able to remove his eyes from her face ida on her side did not dare to look up at him he was a massively built grey-headed man of something more than sixty everything about him expressed strength and determination power alike of body and mind his features were large and heavy but the forehead would have become a man of strong intellect the eyes were full of astonishing vital force and the chin was a physiognomical study so strikingly did its moulding express energy of character he was clean-shaven and scarcely a seam or wrinkle anywhere broke the hard smooth surface of his visage its complexion clear and rosy as that of a child still regarding ida he tore open the envelope at the sight of the writing he not exactly started but moved his head rather suddenly and again turned his eyes upon the messenger sit down he said pointing at a chair the room was an uncomfortable office with no fire he himself took a seat deliberately at the desk whence he could watch ida and began to read as he did so his face remained unmoved but he looked away occasionally as if to reflect what's your name he asked when he had finished beginning at the same time to tear the letter into very small pieces which he threw into a waste paper basket ida sir ida star star hmm? he looked at her very keenly and still looking and still tearing up the letter went on in a hard unmodulated voice well ida star it seems your mother wants to put you in the way of earning your living the child looked up in fear and astonishment you can carry a message 
you'll say to your mother that i'll undertake to do what i can for you on one condition and that is that she puts you in my hands and never sees you again oh i can't leave mother burst from the child's lips involuntary her horror overcome her fear of the speaker i didn't ask you if you could remarked mr woodstock with something like a sneer tapping the desk with the fingers of his right hand i asked whether you could carry a message can you or not yes i can stammered ida then take that message and tell your mother it's all i've got to say run away he rose and stood with his hands behind him watching her ida made what haste she could to the door and sped out into the street End of chapter 2